Awesome. Well, good morning, everyone. So good to see you and uh, welcome to church. My name's Sam. For those of you who don't know, I'm part of the team here at Stone Creek. And here's what you'll notice for those of you who are regulars. Pastor Ricky is not here today. And uh, I'm sorry about that. You're stuck with us instead. And um, he's away, actually, he's on a missions trip, leading a missions trip from Stone Creek to Kenya at the moment. And so I spoke with him this morning and they'd had a great time in church today. And uh, they had a six-hour service today. So the good news is we've only got five prepared for you today, just the five, but they're having a great time. And I just want to say, you know, as, as, a, as a church, we are privileged to have such a great pastor, aren't we? Such a great leader as Pastor Ricky and, uh, and his wife, Shay. And we've been praying for them. We keep praying for that team. They're there for another week. Pray for that team that they'd have a fruitful and effective time on the ground there in Kenya. One of the things I love about this church is just how committed this church is to, to the world. Okay, to the community it lives in, but also to the world. That not only do we have a, t- a team in Kenya right now, but actually this week uh, we have given money towards um, the horrendous situation in Syria and Turkey, the earthquake there, and just the devastation that's caused. And so we're working with Assemblies of God World Missions. We've already sent some money to help support pastors in and the locality in Aleppo uh, out there, and uh, they're providing um, food and clothing and hygiene products. For, for families in, in that community. And also they're working with a hum, humanitarian organization that are looking at providing housing for those who've lost their homes. And so you are part of a great church that they, they respond in such a way. And if you do want to give towards that, you can direct that through Kingdom Builders and just note that it's for the Syria um, and Turkey earthquake. And uh, we'll continue praying for them as well. Also this morning, we've got some guests with us. They're going to be here for a few months, actually. Uh, Pastor Daniel and Larissa Raymer from Rostock in Germany, in the north of Germany. They're here for three months with their, with their amazing children. Matthias, um, uh, remind me of your, your name again. Rebecca and Carolyn. Rebecca and Carolyn, so they're three amazing children. So why don't you just stand just real quickly. We're gonna give them a round of applause. Welcome them this morning. Awesome. So we're, we're believing you're going to have a great time over your three months that God's going to speak to you clearly and specifically. Over the last few weeks, Pastor Ricky has opened up a series on the Ten Commandments. He's been enjoying that so far, that series on the Ten Commandments. And we're looking at the, the Ten Commandments and, and looking at the way that God marked and set His people apart in the Old Testament. And uh, here's what I'll say just really clearly up front is, is what we're not suggesting is the Ten Commandments save us. We only have one Savior and His name is Jesus, right? And the scriptures tell us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Can we get an amen this morning for that? While we were still sinners. In fact, I was reading uh, this week, you know, when Jesus is is resurrected and he comes to see his disciples who have kind of uh, messed up and gone their own way. And uh, and they've they've, um, denied him. They've doubted him. And then Jesus shows up and it tells us in in John, it tells us that uh, Jesus shows himself in the room. He doesn't use the door, he walks through the wall. That's a pretty cool resurrection superpower, right? I know some of you have been to see Ant-Man this week. I'd love that superpower just to show up in a room. Just forget the door, just walk in. And it says he shows up in the room and what he doesn't say to his disciples is, oh, you are are a messed up bunch of individuals. You've, You've rejected me, you've resisted me, you've rebelled against me. He doesn't say that. He stands among amongst them and he says this he says peace be with you that's the kind of savior that we serve right that even in the midst of our mess up that he would interject himself and he would say peace be with you 
But what the Ten Commandments do give us is they give us a framework in which to live out God's way on this earth. I don't know, for those of you who've had children, when you first have your first child, there are some things that you've got to do that you don't think about doing before you have children. One of those things is this, is baby-proofing the house. You've got to baby-proof that house. Anyone know what I'm talking about? That straight away that little baby starts to move around the house. You feel like you lose years of your life chasing your kids around the house, right? And you put a baby gate on the stairs to make sure they don't go up the stairs and hurt themselves. You put locks on the cupboards so they can't get in the cupboards and, and drink all kinds of stuff that they shouldn't be drinking. You put a fire guard in front of the fire so that they're not putting a hand in the fire. You even put some plastic little inserts into your uh, electrical sockets and outlets in your home to make sure they're not putting their finger in the socket to electrocute themselves. You've got to think about things you've never thought about before as you're baby-proofing. And here's the thing, you don't baby-proof your house for you, you baby-proof your house for them because you're protecting and watching over their life. The, the, the ways that God gives us to live are not for God, they're for us because God knows the best way to live. I don't know if anyone in here likes Ikea or, or I don't know how you say it here, Ikea, 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 the big store. And one of the, the things my wife loves to do is shop at Ikea. And she'll go and spend lots of money and come home with lots of furniture. And here's the thing that I despise about Ikea. Flat pack furniture. Who in the world decided to design furniture that you've got to assemble yourself? Hey, not, on, not only have you got to pay for the privilege of this furniture that we have created, but now you've got work to do as well. I'm not getting paid to put together this furniture. I paid you for the furniture. And here's one of the things Rachel will do when she brings the furniture home. She'll lay it out in the lounge and she'll say, there you go. <laughs> like, like I've done my part collecting this furniture. Now it's your job to assemble this furniture. And so here's what I'll do. I'll, I'll start out all confident. I'll open up that box and find the million and one parts that are, that are locked up in that small little box. Who would have thought that a million parts can fit in a tiny little box? And I'll open up that box and here's what I'll do. I'll, I'll find the instructions and then I'll put them to the side. Because I'm going to figure this out on my own. Anybody else? And so hours go by. And I finally assembled the furniture only to find out that I put one of the parts in the wrong way. And now I've got to disassemble the whole thing and start from scratch and put it all together. And Rachel will walk in at that time, my wife Rachel, she'll walk in and she'll say, did you read the instructions? In a very pleasant Northern accent like she has. Did you read the instructions? And I'll say, get behind me, Satan. Get behind, no. I'll say, I'll say no, I didn't but thank you for your correction. And then in humility, I'll go over to the place or the bag that I dumped the instructions in and find it at the bottom of all the polystyrene. How, how did you, who even invented that amount of polystyrene to fit in furniture? Like literally you're fighting with polystyrene. I'll get into the, the bottom of the bag and find the instructions and then start again. Page one, instruction one. Here's the thing. When God designed you and me, the Bible teaches us that He is our creator and sustainer. He is alpha and the omega. He is beginning, He is end. You would think that the creator knows how His creation is to operate. 
You would think at Ikea, whoever created that furniture, you would think that when they created it and they created the steps in which you were to follow in order to get the desired result in your home, looking fresh and clean, that they knew what they were doing. And yet so often we live life on our terms, thinking we know better than Creator. And we start living life, putting our lives together, just assembling it as we want, doing what we want, thinking as we want, walking as we want, living as we want, only to find out at moments of crisis that actually I don't have all this together and I need a source that's outside myself and I need someone who is at His Word, spoke things into being and into motion. And I go back in humility and I say, God, show me how to live. God, show me how to treat others. God, show me how to raise my kids. God, change my heart and help me to be gentle and kind, not angry and living frustrated. God, I want to do it your way. And so as we're looking at the Ten Commandments, here's what we're doing. We're saying, God, help me to live your way on your terms as you intended it to be. And we're on commandment number three today. Commandment number three is this. It's found... In Exodus chapter 20, verse 7, it says this, You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God, for the Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses His name. You must not misuse the name of God. Now this is, this is more than just using the, the ver- verbally use, misusing the name of God, but this, this has implications on the way that you live. That we're to live in such a way as Christ followers that honours God's name. You know, the word Christian in its origin means little Christ. In other words, it was a term that was given from the world to those who followed Jesus, followers of the way, this term Christian, that you are to be a little Christ in this world, that, that you are to show Christ in the way that you speak, in the way that you live to the world around you. What an amazing privilege it is. And we've got to live in such a way that honours His name. Not our name, but His name. A few years ago, I'm a big uh, soccer fan. And for those of you who aren't sports fans, don't worry. This illustration is not limited to sports. Don't want you to tune out if you're not interested in sports. I'm a big soccer fan. And there's a team in England that I would usually watch. And they had a winning team at that time. And they had one player in particular who was scoring all the goals and making all the headlines. And every time he played and he scored, he would go over to the crowd and he would turn around to the crowd and he would point to the name on the back of his shirt. In soccer, they put the person's name on the back of the shirt and their number. And he would point to his name on the back of the shirt. And I remember after one game, they were interviewing his manager. And they they were talking about this player and saying, hey, isn't he wonderful? Isn't he amazing? And the manager stopped the interview and he said, you know what? The name on the back of the shirt is far less important than the name on the front of the shirt. Because on the front of their shirt, they would have the emblem and the logo of the club that they were representing. And he said, no, 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 it's not about the name on the back of the shirt. It's about the name on the front of the shirt that counts. Because we win together. When it comes to being a Christ follower in the world that we live, this world is obsessed with making a name for yourself. And we we put things on social media and point to the name on the back of the shirt. Come on, anybody? 
Uh, and we, in our conversations, we're pointing all the time, showing our significance, showing our talent, showing our ability. Let me tell you this this morning. When it comes to honouring God's name, the name on the front of the shirt, which is Jesus and the Kingdom of God, that you represent something far bigger than you and yourself. And that's what counts. And so when we're talking about honouring God's name, here's what we're talking about. We're talking about living not for our name, but for His. How would that change our lives? The way that we interacted, the way that we lived, if we took that seriously. When Jesus in a conversation was asked, what is the most important commandment? Here's what He said. The most important one, answered Jesus, is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind and with all your strength. And the second is this, love your neighbour as yourself. There is no greater commandment than these. Jesus in one little sentence sums up the whole 10 commandments in two. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your strength, with all your mind and love your neighbour as yourself. That's how you represent God well to this world, by modelling love. And yet here's what I've understood in my own life. It's really hard to model love if you've never received love. It's really hard to model love if you've never received love. And I think if we can get our heads around that and start to embrace the love of God for ourselves, then our living will be an easy step. Because it's really easy. You can obey God without loving Him. But when you love Him, you naturally will obey Him. You can be in and around the things of faith all your life and never really experience the love of God. And you can live out of duty rather than devotion. You can live out of obligation rather than obedience because He loved me. And in order to receive the love of God, you've got to answer the question, where does meaning come from? Where does meaning come from? The world suggests it comes from a lot of different places. You see, we've all got a chronology. We've all got a start and we've all got an end in this world. Don't know when your start was. Mine was 1983 was my beginning. I don't know when my end will be. I hope it'll be a lot longer than what I've experienced right now. But the truth is this, that the end comes for all of us. We all have a start and we all have an end. And what you do in the middle, I know what you're thinking, you don't quite look 39. I know you're thinking that. I look a lot older, I know that, sorry. (laughs) But what you do in the middle between your start and your end, that's what counts. And where you derive your meaning from will dictate what you do in the middle, in your chronology between your start and between your end. And there are a few suggestions that the world gives us in where you're to find your meaning. The first is this, in what you do. What you do. Now I'm talking about two things. I'm talking about what you find yourself doing occupationally and also what you do, your deeds. If I do good deeds, that makes me a good person. But what happens when you don't do good deeds? You know the reality and the state of your own heart, right? 
There are 613 laws in the Old Testament. None of us can measure up. We not only can't measure up to God's standard, you can't even measure up to your own standard. Think about it. When you bring home those cookies and you put them in a cupboard and you say, I'm not touching them or I'm going to have one a week. And then all of a sudden in the first night, the whole cookies are gone. <laughs> like, like you can't even live up to your own standards, let alone God's. And so if you live your life for, forcing yourself to do good so that makes you good and you find your meaning from that, it'll be empty because you could never measure up in and of yourself. If you find it from your occupation, what's the number one question we ask people when we first meet them? What do you do? Because you want to be defined by what you do. I'm an architect. I'm a mum. I'm a father. I'm a pastor. I work in education. I'm a doctor. We all want to be defined by what we do. The world tries to pigeonhole us in that definition of what we do. But what happens when what you do is taken from you? Because there'll come a point where you do retire. There'll come a point where maybe you'll get sick and you can no longer do what you once did. And so what you, did, what you do now that used to define you now becomes an irritation and you start questioning, who am I? Because I thought I was meant to be defined in this world by what I do. But what you do can be taken from you. You are not defined by what you do. The second suggestion that the world t tends to give us in, in answering this question, where do I get my meaning from, is this, I am what other people say about me. So I spend my days building a reputation so that other people think well of me. The only thing is, not everyone is going to think well of you all of the time. And neither should they if you create healthy boundaries for your life because you're going to tell them no or you're going to put yourself out there. Maybe you put yourself out there on social media and you open yourself up, not just for praise, but you open yourself up for the critics. And what happens? What do you do when you read a comment that you don't like? What do you do when someone just takes a dislike to you and you don't know why? What You spend all your night and all your evening trying to work out, why don't they like me? I think I'm pretty nice. I think I'm pretty good because you can't control what other people think about you. And if you live life just trying to gain everyone's approval so they think well of you, you will live an empty existence and you will end up tired, worn out, trying to show everybody else that you're good. The third thing that the world suggests in the way that we should get our meaning is what we have, what we have. Get more, get more, get more. Amass for yourself great treasure on this earth. Get more. The only thing is you can't take more with you. When you end this life or when you breathe your last, how frustrating is it? that everything you have amassed in your life, and they are good things, I'm not saying they are wrong, but you cannot take one of them with you. The only thing that you can take with you in this world are other people. You ever thought about that? 
That's the only thing that you can take with you. If you show and shine Jesus in such a way that other people receive him, they come with you. Your stuff doesn't. And yet the world will try and define you by the car that you have, the degree that you have, and all those things are great. The house that you have, but you are not defined by them. Don't let your, you possessing them have you, possess you. You can have them without them having you. And in fact, when you think about Jesus, when he's led into the wilderness after his baptism and he faces the devil face to face, we know that he faces all three of these temptations to derive his meaning from these places. When Satan comes to him and he says, turn this bread, turn this rock into bread. Here's what Satan says, do something, do something. Derive your meaning from what you could do. You could do this. And Jesus says, no. Man shall not live on bread alone, but by every word that comes from his Father. I'm not gonna be defined by what I do. And then Satan says, what does Satan say? He says, jump from this temple. And angels, because you're so well thought of, angels will, will literally plummet and, and stop you from hitting the ground because you're thought well of. And Jesus says, no, I won't derive my meaning from what others think about me and say about me. And then Satan says to Jesus, he says, bow down and I will give you power and prestige and position. Bow down. And Jesus says, no, I don't get my meaning from what I have. So the question is, where does Jesus get his meaning from? And when you flick back a few verses, you'll find in Luke chapter 3, verse 22, at Jesus' baptism, he has this moment of acceptance and recognition. And it says this, the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove and a voice came from heaven and here's what the voice said, you are my son whom I love and with you I am well pleased. Think about this for just a moment. This is before Jesus has performed any miracle. This is before Jesus has taught the Sermon on the Mount. This is before Jesus even has one follower and he hears a voice from heaven that says, you are my son whom I love and in you I am well pleased that you don't have to do anything to gain my love, son. That you don't have to, you don't have, to have a great reputation in order for you to gain my love, son. You don't have to have anything in this world for you to gain my love, son. You are my son and I love you. And if we're gonna live out God's name on this world and shine Him and show Him to a world that's in desperate need of Him, we've gotta get back to this realisation that it's not about what I do. It's not about what other people think about me. It's not about what I have. It's that I'm loved. I'm loved. I don't have to earn God's love. I have it. I don't have to earn God's acceptance. He's, he's already accepted me. I've got everything that I need. If I have nothing else, but I've got and understand His love, I've got enough. 
If nothing else comes to me, if no one knows who I am, if I never, if I never fit in into what I feel like the mould the world gives me, if I never apply myself to doing what I feel like I, uh, people know me for doing, then I've got enough because I'm loved by the God of creation, by the God of heaven and earth, that He knows your name. And the same thing that He says to Jesus, He says to me and you, you're my beloved son and daughter. I love you. And here, before you do a thing, I'm really pleased with you. I'm really pleased with you. So students, maybe you're in here and you're trying to think about your life and you're trying to plan it out and you've got a 10-year plan mapped out and that's good. It's good to think about that and thinking about vocation, what God's gifted you for and what He's called you for. But don't buy into the illusion that your meaning is derived from anything other than the fact that God created you and He loves you and He's proud of you. And when He looks at you, He's pleased. Maybe this week you've done some stuff and you came in here this morning into church and you're thinking like, I can't lift my hands in worship because just so much baggage. My mind's just racked with guilt. Here's the thing. There's nothing you can do to get God to love you more. And there's nothing you could do to get God to love you less. He loves you. You don't have to earn it. He loves you. He gave it. And that's what we celebrate. As we think about Jesus and all that He accomplished, that He made a way for me to be loved and to know Him. So how do we live out that love? A few suggestions for us before we finish this morning. Is living loved. Is number one, you've got to receive His love. You've got to receive His love. Maybe you're in here and I don't know what kind of experience you had in your home growing up. Maybe, just maybe, you've never known true love. The truth is this, none of us have. Earthly love doesn't even come close to the love that we receive from our Heavenly Father. And so in some ways, whether you had a poor experience from parents or a great experience, we're all on a level playing field because no love that we've received in an earthly context could measure up. I once went to hear the author of The Shack do a Q&A, William P. Young. And he said this, they were asking him some questions on, his, on, his, on the book and on his own encounter with God. And he said this, it took me 10 years of being a Christian for me to finally get to the point where I managed to wipe my father's face off God's face. Because the imperfect love that he received from his earthly father tainted his view of his heavenly father. And we've got to all come to a place where we say, God, help me to receive your love. How could I ever give the love of God? If I've never received the love of God, first you've got to receive it. And so in just a few moments, we're going to have an opportunity to do that again. For you to say, I want to know that love. Maybe you've never known that love. Maybe you've been living in ways and you're trying to find your own way, build your life your own way. Hey, come on, God brought you to this place today to let you know you are loved and He is pleased with you. And here's where it starts and here's where it ends, in His love.
he get a chance to receive that. The third thing is, uh, the second thing is this, we gotta rest in his love. Rest in his love. The temptation as a Christ follower is always to try and strive to earn God's love. That's not the way it works. You don't have to earn God's love, you have it. We get to obey Him and live out His way and His will on this earth because we're loved by Him. I remember my father, I shared a story about him the other week. I remember my father, he became a Christian before I was born. But the truth is this, I grew up in a home where, with an angry father. We were all, all his children were, were in, lived in fear of him. And I'd always, for a long time, I questioned his faith because I thought he, he says that he believes in God and I never doubted that God was real, but I didn't want the God that he served because I didn't want a God who made me angry. I had enough anger. I remember as he got his diagnosis, his cancer diagnosis towards the end of his life, we'd had a really bad relationship up until then, if I'm really honest. We never spoke. And the last year of his life, God brought it all together and he gave us the best year we've ever had. And I remember sitting with him as he got his cancer diagnosis after that. I remember sitting with him and talking to him about his life. I'd never asked him about his life. Here's what he told me, that the first seven years of his life, he spent it in hospital. He had TB. And so he was out of the home for the first seven years of, of his life, in and, in and out of hospital. By the time he went back home as a seven-year-old, they'd had two more children and he was the forgotten child. He never knew what it was to be loved. And his whole life was a struggle, never feeling like he measured up. He became, my mum got married, started having kids, then became Christians. And yet he was still trying to strive and prove something. He, he studied at, at college, he was a builder, then he went and studied as an architect. He had two master's degrees and was studying his doctorate. And when he walked into my dad's office, in the, in the architect company that he started, when he walked into his office, you would see all his certificates scattered around the office. And he would proudly show you everything. And education's great, education's good. I'm not slighting that at all. But it's where my, my, my dad started to derive his meaning. Look at the company I've started from nothing. Look at the degrees I have. I remember the last year of his life. I remember going into his room a week after he got his cancer diagnosis. I remember walking into his bedroom and he had a big smile on his face and my dad didn't smile. And I said, Dad, are you feeling okay? Because in my mind, I'm thinking he's just got his cancer diagnosis. This is not good news. You've got 12 months to live. It's not good news, right? You've got a smile on your, on your face. And you know what he said? He said, Samuel, sit down. Last night, I experienced the love of God for the first time in my whole life. And here's what he said, it washed over me like waves, like waves. And he said, now I know what it feels like to feel God's love, not just to theorise God's love, but to feel God's love and to know His love. Let me ask you this morning, do you know His love? Do you know His love? That when you know His love, you can rest in His love. And we moved house, His home, 
six months before he passed away. And we took all his certificates down off his walls and we put them in a bag and we took them to the new place that he was living. And I said, Dad, where do you want me to put all your certificates? And you know what he said? In the trash. Because now I realise that that's not what defines me. I'm loved by the living God and that's enough for me. Let me tell you, that's powerful when you realise that. Powerful. You can rest in His love. And the third thing is this. We represent His love. Worship team, if you want to come. We represent His love. Me and my my wife, Rachel, we got married in the... July, and we started Bible college together in the September of the same year. And one of the things that we would do as part of the the Bible college that we were at is we would go on an international missions trip each year. And I remember uh, one of the years we went to South Africa. I love South Africa. Awesome. And we were working with a church in the north of South Africa up by White River near the Kruger National Park. An amazing church. And this church, they had an orphan feeding program. Every day they fed 250 orphans. And we got to be part of that. We got to to literally serve the food to these orphans. And it was a powerful thing. Being on the site of this church, 250 orphans just descending on the church for us to feed them. No home, no family. They had an AIDS clinic on the side of the church and they treated those who were suffering with AIDS. And there was an amazing woman who ran the whole operation. Big smile, beaming smile on her face continuously. And I remember one day we got to sit her down and ask her questions just about the way that the program functioned, the AIDS clinic, the church, the orphan program, the work that they were doing in rebuilding homes in the communities. Phenomenal work. And I remember sitting her down and asking her, can I ask you, why do you do what you do? What is it? Why? Why would you give up your time? She wasn't paid much. Why would you, why would you do that? And here's what she did. She looked me right back in the eye and it stuck with me. I will never forget it. She said this, I love Jesus. And so this is what I do. I love Jesus. And this is what I do. When you understand and know the love of God, when you receive it, when you rest in it, you get the great privilege of now representing that love to a world that is in desperate need of love. And not a gushy, you know, false, fake kind of love. I mean a real love. A love that cares. A love that'll sacrifice. A love that'll overlook wrongs. A love that'll humble itself. A love that'll make itself low in order to lift other people up. And you and me, get the great privilege and opportunity to represent the same love that we receive to the world around us. And the question for each and every one of us is this, how will we represent that love well? And it starts this morning with you receiving it afresh. So come on, why don't you stand to your feet?
just in this moment. We want to create just a, just a few moments. Maybe you just got sucked in to the rat race of life and you've been trying to build yourself a life and you've been doing, doing, doing and you've been building a reputation and a name for yourself and you've been getting, getting, getting and God brought you to a point today for you to receive afresh His love. That that's not where your meaning comes from. You are loved. You are no better and you are no worse than every other human being who has lived and does live right now. And all of us are children of the living God. So in this moment, would you bow your heads, close your eyes. If you're in here today and you say, wow, I want that, I want to receive that love again, just lift up your hands. Maybe for some of you, it's the first time that you say, I want to know that love. Come on, in this moment, you get an opportunity to receive it. So just lift up your hand where you are and say, Jesus, come. Take hold of my life. Lead me. I surrender to you. Father God, I pray that your love would wash over your children this morning. I pray that God, where we've projected the way that we think love works onto you, I pray you would rip up the script this morning. I pray that we would see you clearly. Your, your love, thank you for the Scriptures that they are your love story, that you created humanity and you, was, you were planning even when sin entered the world to send a Redeemer and a Freer, to send someone who would deal with the effects and the fruit of sin and deal with death in Jesus. Thank you that it's, it's part of the beginning. It's part of the, the, the crucible moment where Jesus, you're birthed into this world where you live a sinless life, you die a perfect death, you're resurrected. And thank you that we know that the story's not over, that God, you continue to write and that you will be back for those that you love and for the world that you love. And so I pray that today we would know afresh the love of the Father for us, working His purpose out in our lives, that we would receive it, that we would rest in it and that we would represent it well to the world around us, we pray in Jesus' Name. In Jesus' Name, Amen. Hey, come on, we get an opportunity to worship like we're loved this morning. Come on, you can worship like you're loved and like you're free. And so come on, let's do that as we close.